Well, welcome to the United States Study Centre webinar on uh, US-China relations under a Biden administration, uh, which is probably the most discussed topic in foreign policy, or at least in this region right now, since the elections uh, were held a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I'm delighted to have Bethany Allen uh, Ibrahimian join us from the United States, Washington, D.C., in the United States. Uh, Bethany is the China reporter at Axios and is the author of the weekly Axios China newsletter. Uh, Axios began in 2016 and is a very successful disruptor of the news media landscape, and I mean this in a very positive way. It basically tells you in a very brief, timely, accurate and substantive way what is happening, why it matters and what to watch out for in the future. Uh, Bethany's China newsletter is one of the uh, flagship uh, uh, offerings by Axos. It's one of the most popular and useful. Uh, I've signed up to the newsletter personally, and I would strongly recommend that you do so if you're at all interested uh, in everything relevant to China's actions, influence, and intentions in the world. Uh, you can do that at www.axios.com. Um, I first connected with Bethany uh, when she was with foreignpolicy.com and she was later the national security reporter for the dailybeast.com uh, before taking on her current role at Axios. Now, this means that she has covered China from Washington, D.C. for about six years and she knows the people well, she knows the thinking in the town and she knows all the manoeuvrings going on in the White House, uh, the Hill and the various departments and agencies. Uh, she was the Arthur F. Burns Fellow in Berlin and previously a Jefferson Fellow at the East-West Centre in Honolulu. Uh, she has worked in China and Bethany is a fluent uh, Mandarin speaker and writer. Uh, she holds a Master's of Arts in East Asian Studies from Yale University amongst other degrees. Uh, Bethany, welcome and I'm really looking forward to the chat ahead. Uh, before I uh, give the uh, virtual floor to you, Bethany. Let me just uh, offer some, some scene setting comments. Um, I will, uh, Bethany will, will, after this, Bethany will speak for roughly 10 minutes or so. Um, I'll pose a few questions to her and we'll also work in questions from uh, the audience. I already have some of these which have been pre-submitted, but please keep sending them through via the Q&A chat function and I'll work, in, uh, work the questions in as much as I can. Well, uh, in a month or so, or a couple of months, we can only assume that Joe Biden will be the president, uh, although the so-called October surprise, maybe there'll be a November or December surprise, but we'll see. But let's assume that there is a change in administration uh, next year. Now, we are told uh, constantly that there is a bipartisan consensus that dealing with China is the first order of business when it comes to American external policy. Now, just this week, the policy planning staff at the State Department uh, released a document uh, called The Elements of the China Challenge, which is even being compared to the so-called long telegram in terms of potential significance. Uh, the long telegram, by the way, was written in 1946. Uh, it was an 8,000 word essay by then Deputy Ambassador in Moscow, George Kennan, uh, which was sent to the State Department to explain Stalin's thoughts and actions. Uh, which Kennan believed was fundamentally expansionary on hostile to the United States and to the West. Uh, in turn, a long telegram became one of the foundational documents
documents that gave rise to the subsequent American approach to dealing with the Soviet Union. Uh, those of you who are interested can go to the State Department website yourself to read the elements of the China challenge, which is over 70 pages long. Uh, but I raise this document because the themes in it, uh, which go towards explaining uh, and responding to the challenge and even threat of China, uh, will not disappear when Biden takes office. These include maintaining American technological and military superiority, uh, not just supporting, but fortifying the free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, reassessing and reorganizing uh, American alliances and sec security partnerships for this purpose of managing China, even confronting China in some respects, engaging with Beijing, but based on principles of fairness and reciprocity, uh, training a new generation of public servants to ensure they are ready to undertake this uh, uh, mission, and explaining the scope and importance of the challenge to the American people. So it's a comprehensive uh, document at the tail end of the Trump administration, uh, and many of those themes will be carried forward by the Biden administration. Now, to me, this reads as muscular but principal internationalism rather than retreat or unilateralism, uh, which I'm sure will reassure allies. But just because Biden and Trump agree about the existence of a China challenge doesn't mean they will both pursue the same policies. And indeed, Trump supporters are saying that China will run rings around the Biden administration and Beijing will seize back the initiative in a bilateral relationship if Biden takes office. Biden supporters say that Trump has alienated allies and partners and in doing so has given Beijing an enormous advantage. And the Biden supporters say that his administration will wrestle that advantage back. Now to take on these issues, um, her take on what a Biden administration would be like in, in the context of US-China relations. Bethany, I'll hand over to you for 10 minutes or so, uh, and then we'll launch into some uh, uh, discussion. Thanks, Bethany. Thanks so much, John. Um, it's really a pleasure to speak here at the United States Studies Center again, and I hope someday in the future to be able to visit in person when that kind of thing is possible again. Um, and yes, I'll start out my discussion uh, with the, the, what some people are calling, you know, the equivalent of the long telegram, whether or not it will withstand the test of time, uh, you know, we, we don't know. But it, it definitely does lay out what uh, is the the best thinking, um, the, the, the frameworks that four years of being in office that the, uh, the Trump administration has come to on, on how the U.S. and indeed its allies should approach China. And it was released with the intention of being a framework for other governments and for the Biden administration. And what's, as John mentioned, what's really interesting about it is the strong emphasis on multilateralism, which seems to be a departure from at least some elements of the Trump era foreign policy. There's, there's 10 recommendations in it, and two of them are about multilateral organizations and alliances. And one of them, it says, you know, not just to work with alliances and to strengthen alliances, but also to create new multilateral organizations explicitly for pushing back against China and for supporting rule of law and democracy. It doesn't sound like the Trump administration. So I want to sort of maybe lift the, you know, the curtain a little bit on that. 
I think it's really important to understand going into a Biden administration that there have been sort of two China policies in the Trump administration. One of them is run by China himself and uh, people like, you know, the um, Secret uh, Secretary of the Treasury and, and Commerce, so uh, Mnuchin uh, and Wilbur Ross, which has been very trade war focused. All the trade war stuff, which has sucked up a ton of oxygen um, and it has not been focused on democracy maintenance, but rather on sort of evening the score between the U.S. and China. In some ways, uh, that has you know been very much Trump. But a lot of the stuff that we have seen uh, beyond that, that's focused on you know China's malign activities, Trump has not really been involved in. And when people ask me, oh you know Bethany, what does Trump what does Trump think about this, or what's Trump going to do on that, or what is Trump's policy? And I'm like, well, he's not really doing anything. <laughs> it's it's really the Trump administration, the Trump administration officials, um, and that has been ex extremely exceedingly true in 2020. After the coronavirus pandemic um, happened, so and after the signing of the Phase One trade deal, trade deal in January, uh, but then after the coronavirus pandemic, Trump seemed he seemed to just kind of throw up his hands and be like, "I'm done with China. Do whatever you want. You know, I'm just whatever." And so inside the Trump administration, you've had a ton of people, all kinds of people, area experts, you know, people who've been working on China and human rights and all kinds of issues for a long time. This was their big opportunity and everybody knew it. So it was kind of like everyone who had some kind of wish, something on their wish list, they were just like throwing it, you know, throwing it out the door, trying to get it out um, while this period of time was available. And so what means is that a lot of the policies we've seen that, that the U.S. adopt in 2020 aren't really Trump policies. They're more like establishment Republican, slightly China hawkish policies. And because, uh, as, as John mentioned, um, and as we kind of know, there has been to some extent a bipartisan consensus on China, a lot of those policies are actually quite bipartisan. Uh, in the US, they have been a bit tainted. So um, some of these, you know, for example, a, a skepticism about the use of the Global Magnitsky Act to sanction the uh, Xinjiang production and construction core, the XPCC in Xinjiang, or uh, the, you know, the, the Trump administration's decision to um, uh, end the special economic status of Hong Kong, some, some of these kinds of policies. For people who are somewhat less China experts, they, oh, that's just Trump being ridiculous. No, it's actually not Trump and it's not ridiculous. It's, these are pretty mainstream policies. So with this is the back, with this, this is the backdrop. The Biden administration's China team is going to come in and the policies that they're going to be examining and deciding whether or not they want to continue and the people who are going to be working with them perhaps on the trans, you know, on the transition are people that they might even view as colleagues, you know, people that they have pushed through policies that have been sort of percolating in the China, the broader China community for a long time. So the, the, the China part of the transition could potentially be much smoother than we might see in some other more contentious areas, maybe like trade and I'm not sure what else. Uh, because these people know each other. Eli Ratner, who is you know, widely expected to be um, appointed to a, a top China-related position, perhaps in the National Security Council, widely respected by you know, some of the China subject area experts in the Trump administration. What does this mean for Biden administration policy? Well, it means a couple of things. Um, it, it means that the Trump administration has correctly identified a lot of the problems that the Biden administration would agree are problems. So, um, dominance, uh, growing dominance of China in the fields of AI uh, and 5G and other advanced technologies. Um, concern about China's use of economic coercion 
for geopolitical reasons. And, you know, Australia is ground zero for that, especially this week. Um, concern about China's rising military power, concern about uh, China's use of the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, other kinds of geopolitical economic initiatives to spread its influence and to form a, a block to help it, among other things, um, erode human rights norms around the world. A profound concern about the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities in China that are the targets of a severe campaign of repression that some call some are calling genocide. These are all shared areas of concern. And uh, so, so the Biden administration is, is surely has this on their list. What's it, what is it slightly problematic though, um, it, because of the fact that they that people in the Trump administration and the Biden administration share these areas of concern is as I mentioned before, that some of the Trump era China policies have been painted by Trumpness that left of center people, some Democrats who aren't China specialists, view Trump administration policies as inherently illegitimate. And a good example of that would be TikTok. So many people roll their eyes at you know, the, the Trump against, uh, at the, the White House executive order, Trump's own executive action against TikTok. And I would agree that that was a very clumsy way to handle it. But TikTok is an actual concern. It is real, it is a legitimate concern uh, to, you know, American, uh, the free flow of uh, information in the U.S. to, you know, um, perhaps data collection. There are legitimate concerns here. And it's hard for me to even persuade people that I personally know that this is an actual issue. And that's because so much of what Trump has done has been, um, you know, perceived as, as outrageous and harmful to democracy and harmful to minority groups and et cetera. So the Biden administration will have to find a way to thread that needle, which is to, in some, in some ways, to pick up where the Trump administration left off without being perceived to continue those policies, which is um, a bit of a paradox. Now, what will, what will Biden surely do differently? We know, because he said so, that he is going to do things through allies and through multilateral organizations. So in some ways you could, you could maybe, as a loose framework, see what the Biden administration will do as Trump area experts plus allies. So a much greater emphasis on um, forming consensus with European partners, for example, on 5G. Trump administration has been a bit heavy handed with that, has issued threats. You know, we will stop intelligence sharing with you. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you allow Huawei into your networks, I can see a Biden administration focusing a lot more on, on a, a more equal partnership of consensus building and on, a, you know, on, on leadership in that way rather than on um, demands and commands. Um, Biden during his campaign said that he would have a summit, a democracy summit, to try to get democracies together to talk about how to protect democracy in an era in which authoritarianism seems to be on the rise, not just in China, but with Russia, Hungary, and even, even within some US and European, North American and European societies. I mean, certainly the US is struggling with that as well. So he, he has said that, and there's plenty of initiatives that he could choose from to, to help lead, such as the creation of a democratically focused tech alliance, how to create uh, democratic norms for, um, for our advanced technologies and how to facilitate markets between democracies to promote innovation and commercial success if we are not able to engage with China commercially in the area of 5G. 
Um, so we're definitely, I mean, most assuredly going to see those efforts. Now, why are people concerned and why do people say that China might run circles around the Biden administration? I, I think there's, I understand why people are concerned about that. And I think it's extremely difficult to, to know what, will, what the next four years will hold. The U.S. is facing some really intense challenges. Uh, I mean, our own um, coronavirus pandemic is absolutely out of control. It's, it's ravaging our communities and causing huge economic damage. And that will be priority number one for Biden, um, for sure. And so what does that mean? If that's priority number one, China is not going to be priority number one. And, you know, the, the U.S. has a lot of just, we have racial, you know, systemic racial injustice. That's also probably going to take a, um, you know, a, a seat uh, ahead of China in terms of the Biden administration's focuses. My concern would be that the China issues, while they are intellectually things that I would agree with, that maybe the statements coming out of the Biden administration would be like, oh, yes, excellent, very good, that they will have a hard time putting resources towards those. Because here's the bottom line, pushing back against China because China is so powerful is costly. The U.S. will bear costs if we push back against uh, China in meaningful ways. Those costs may come in terms of um, tariffs, reduced access to Chinese markets, losses for American companies, higher prices for American consumers. And I'm only just beginning. There could be many other kinds of costs. And when our economy is so weak, when we have a high unemployment rate, when, you know, at this point, a quarter million Americans have died, who knows how many that will be, you know, six months from now, it may just not really be politically feasible or even economically feasible for the U.S. to take a really hard line. And I think that's what people are concerned about. And certainly when it comes to the, you know, the, the Uyghur um, genocide, how can, you know, it's, it's tough for, I think, government officials to choose between trying to support Uyghurs and, and trying to keep Americans employed if it comes down to that. So I will leave my remarks there. Um, thanks, John. Thanks, Bethany. Um, as expected, you've given us plenty of uh, room to ground to play with. So I'm going to fire a few um, uh, questions that, that at you, and, and I encourage the audience as well to submit the questions via the Q and A uh, section. First, first, let me pose a question um, on on behalf of national security com community in Australia. Um, if 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 I, if I could put it like that. I, when I was in government, I served half my time under an Obama administration, when Obama was in power, and half my time under Trump administration. And if you have uh, honest conversations about national security community, I think they had mixed feelings about whether they wanted Biden or Trump to win. Um, a lot of the national security communities in my country, I would say also in Japan, India, Vietnam, which are basically the forward-leaning countries against China. Um, they liked some elements of the Trump administration, mainly the capacity or the um, inclination of the Trump administration to confront and disrupt uh, Beijing and put Beijing at least tactically, not strategically, but tactically on the back foot. Um, the concern was that, that uh, Biden is a far more conventional president, which in some ways is is more reassuring and more conventional in temperament. But the concern is that there may be uh, an unwillingness at the very top to rock the boat and disrupt, not, not just for the economic reasons that you mentioned, but, but, just, but, but for psychological and temperamental reasons. Uh, and, and, and there are concerns amongst the national security community that um, this may allow Beijing to once again normalize the sorts of behaviors that it has come pressure, come under pressure um, under the Trump administration. 
Um, no, you, what would your thoughts be on, on those sorts of concerns? I think those are very legitimate concerns. Um, you know, Biden was Obama's vice president. And I think in the, the last, I mean, as you know, probably better than I do in the last few years, especially of the Obama administration, I think a lot of people were grew very, very frustrated with Obama's um, approach to China that he, he was unwilling to push the envelope. He was unwilling to try to try new new ways to get them to stop what they were doing. It's admirable that he wanted to work very, very well within the established system of, you know, rules and norms and all that. That's admirable, but it wasn't working. And that's where Biden came from, right? So I, I definitely understand that. And I think that that is a very reasonable concern. I, I don't know what will happen. And it, it depends uh, also to some extent on who else he chooses to surround himself with. And we don't know the answers to that yet. Like I, I mentioned Eli Ratner, he's the, he's the only person I know for sure, right, really. Um, it, it depends on who he chooses for other advisors, for Secretary of State, for a, a, lot, of, a lot of people. So I think it's, even, it's hard to predict now who he empowers and also you know, who he listens to in the future on these um, very specific issues. I think that it's you know, on the other side of things, what is conventional now is different than what was conventional in 2015. Uh, and that's in, in part because the Trump administration has blasted through a bunch of norms. Um, but they, they did not in fact do it entirely alone, right? We, we have seen um, oh, in Australia and uh, Germany and Britain and you know, Sweden um, con consider doing things that we would never have imagined five years ago because uh, you know, the, the Trump administration did change, um, you know, the, the pH of the water to, to such a strong extent. And also China's different. China is acting very different. And you could, you know, you could blame Trump for that, but that's, I think, infantilizing China. I mean, China is so aggressive, especially in 2020. They have just, they have, act, I mean, they, what happened, uh, you know, two years ago, they took two Canadians as political hostages. Um, you know, they're, they're just explicitly using tariffs against Australia to try to, you know, get you guys from just doing your own normal internal politics. It's, it's really outrageous. Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong is different. Um, you know, they just, it was an authoritarian takeover in Hong Kong. The, the Uyghur genocide wasn't happening. So there are these significant, very different things that have, uh, I think, changed the environment that, that could push, uh, you know, at, at least hold Biden to a, a different status quo. Would he, would he want to, you know, like push that status quo back to something like 2015? I don't think so. But what does, but, but you know, what about new challenges? What will happen in 2022 um, if China does some new, uh, you know, aggressive behavior? Is Biden going to react as a traditionalist or is he going to react as someone who's dealing with a, a newly aggressive rising super, you know, authoritarian superpower? I, I, I don't know. Um, let you know, you raised the issue of China's behaviour, and I know you've got substantial knowledge about China in and of itself, um, particularly Chinese foreign policy. So, so let me ask you this question. As you, as you know, Australia has been feeling the heat of Chinese threats, and some of those threats have been carried out. Uh, but as you know as well, Australia uh, might be at the forefront of this uncomfortable dynamic at the moment, but we hardly alone. 
Um, you know, the Chinese approach used to be to avoid giving countries a reason to gang up on it. And it would often pick on one country at, at any one time, but not many countries at, 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 at the same time. Uh, now, what's your interpretation of what's happening in Beijing? I mean, has the approach changed? Is there any thinking behind it? Um, or, or is it just perception that, um, that, that Beijing has become more uh, caustic than usual? It's not just perception. Uh, it's, it's real. I mean, th again, 2020 was just so many things have happened. I mean, China, the, the Chinese Communist Party has done so many things that I just, if you told me, you know, six years ago, I just wouldn't have thought it possible. Um, the, the, the mil you know, outbreak of like an actual military um, conflict on the border with India, the way that it's treated Australia, um, the, I mean, the political hostages with Canada and the way that they have continued to just so overtly tied the fates of the two Michaels to, um, uh, Meng Wanzhou, uh, the CFO of Huawei, uh, just so many things have been so overt. Uh, what's, what, what, you know, what's the cause for this behavior? Or, you know, the, the wolf warrior diplomacy. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I do believe that there is, uh, I, I think there's a, there's a pretty strong belief uh, in, in Beijing that the U.S. is really on the out and out. Um, I think they believe too strongly in that. I think that they do not, I think that they have underestimated, well, God, I hope they've underestimated the resilience of American democracy and society. They did that in 2008. There were people in Beijing who were truly convinced in 2008 that America was gonna collapse and we didn't. Um, I think there are people truly convinced that America is gonna collapse in some way and maybe that we actually are right now collapsing. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe it is what's happening, but I don't think so. Um, I think that they believe that they are more or less already the world's, you know, primary superpower or will be inevitably very soon, and thus they can get away with this kind of behavior. I think there is certainly a, a number of people who think that. That's not the only thing going on. Uh, I, I also think that um, the way that Xi Jinping has shaped what's okay to say and what's not okay to say and the way that he has shaped the information environment in China, um, you know, he's, and the way that he has um, helped uh, really um, make national, you know, this, this sort of raw nationalism, and he's really promoted that sense of raw nationalism. I think there's a really bad echo chamber um, in, in China. And I think that that, that is also part, partially what we're seeing. Uh, and, and this is, you know, this is, a, this is a problem when you have an echo chamber, whether that's caused by censorship or something else, is that you make strategic miscalculations. Uh, and I think that Chinese officials are, some Chinese officials think that also, so thirdly, I think, and relatedly, that some Chinese officials think that this is the way to get ahead within the bureaucracy. And I, I, this is one very, I think, clear and possible explanation for the rise of wolf warrior diplomacy, that Zhao Lijian got rewarded for his absolutely wild Twitter account. And this seems to be something that is, is popular, perceived as being popular, perceived as a way to get ahead. Um, now that could stop, Xi Jinping could put a stop to that, but he hasn't. Um, so it seems to be something that's being rewarded right now from within the system. Um, just, I'll go back as well to the comments you made about uh, alliances and, and Biden's preferred route to, to re-emphasise alliances and security partnerships. Um, there are some, there are some, look, that's generally a welcome message from allies and partners, but, and it's quite a big but, there are some security allies and partners uh, who probably don't want to be as forward-leaning 
as, say, Australia, Japan. So the question I'm asking is um, Biden's professed uh, or determination to work more closely with allies and partners in the context of managing China, will that mean he'll actually demand more from allies and partners? Uh, whereas under Trump administration, some of them sort of could have sort of stayed uh, on the sidelines, uh, make themselves a small target and avoid mm -hmm. the confrontation. That's a really interesting point. I, I would have to think more about that, about to what extent, you know, Trump has actually demanded things. I and mean, he's made some very high profile and like very rude demands um, of, you know, countries that have worked so closely with the U.S. and trusted in U.S. leadership and put their own um, policies and even the lives of some of their own um, citizens on the line for U.S. objectives. Um, it, that's interesting. One, one way to kind of address a, a, a related issue or sort of address that from the side is to say, what if Biden wants to create a new major multilateral organization of some kind? What if he decides that the WTO just, you know, with its current rules, which is that any decisions must be made with 100% consensus, which means if any rules want to be changed in order to push back against China, that's impossible because China will veto it. So let's say that you're like, okay, you know what, that's WTO non-functioning, let's start again without China. That's an enormous demand. Would allies who have seen two things from the US, not, not just Trump himself acting the way that he did and just you know, throwing mud in the face of, of US allies, but the fact that American society is capable and our system is capable of electing someone like that, maybe you'll elect someone like that in, again in 2024. It would be a huge ask to ask the world to leave the WTO and rejoin a new organization. Um, as, and would the world trust an American president, even one as you know, congenial and um, trusted as Joe Biden, to, to do that kind of thing? Or to rejoin the, the JCPOA, the, you know, the Iran deal, or to, to the, you know, for the US to rejoin the TPP or to have some kind of new trade agreement or something. Those are, those are really big asks and they require foreign government leaders to draw from their own domestic capital for someone, some other government's you know, persuasive um, asks. That, and that, that is a big ask. Um, so potentially, yes, I think that we could, you know, that's uh, potentially what um, a, a very proactive and multilateralist Biden administration might be asking. I mean, incidentally, one of the contexts I had in mind, and, and um, you know, you may choose to take this as a comment or a question, is Biden's, um, Biden's, Biden's uh, statement that he will convene a alliance of democracies or Congress of democracies. Now, obviously he's doing that in large part as a uh, normative counter to China. And the question would be, or my comment would be, countries like South Korea, Indonesia, even some of the European mm -hmm. countries, would they feel comfortable in being a very active part or something like that, even the optics of it would make some of them feel quite uncomfortable. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that's a wrong or incorrect uh, policy, but that's where my comment and my question is coming from. Um, let's move to some of the economics because there's quite a lot of questions being submitted um, based more on the economic dynamic. Um, a regional multilateral strategy under Biden, uh, and this is probably the main uh, criticism, I think, in the most uh, effective criticism against Trump, he basically didn't have a multilateral economic approach um, to anything, when it, particularly when it came to countering China. 
Now, we've had news about the uh, uh, conclusion of the RCEP um, trade agreement. Yes, it's a low level or low standard trade agreement in many respects. Um, it's not a gold standard agreement. Um, but will this increase the pressure on a Biden administration to reconsider TPP or something like that? I think definitely, yeah. I think that um, the signing of the RCEP, I mean, it, it, it's, it is what it is, but it's also something more. Uh, you know, it, it's the signing of a, you know, now technically the world's largest uh, free trade bloc, but it, but it also demonstrates um, that China can actually carry through <laughs> with a big um, agreement, a trade bloc like that, a, an agreement like that. You know, they got, were involved in it from the beginning and they stayed with it all the way through and didn't suddenly cancel and, you know, abuse their, ab abuse their trade partners in the process. Um, so I think it, it shows the relative reliability of China as an, as an economic partner. Um, lost my train of thought. What was the other part of the question? Sorry. Um, oh, 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 I, I mean, like, I think it's really just, I think you really answered it. It's really just about whether uh, Biden would feel the pressure yeah. to, to rejoin formal um, economic regimes. Yes, and, and I, I mean, I think it's, it's pressure, but also I think it's just probably what they want. I think his team probably wants that. Um, TPP is a little politically sensitive in the U.S. I remember in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton was on, under a lot of pressure to, uh, you know, to say that she wouldn't sign it or to say that she would have to, you know, renegotiate it or something because of the way that our industries have been hollowed out. There was, you know, there's um, a real base of people who are very skeptical right now of those kinds of free trade agreements. So that it would have to be, it would, it would be a politically delicate thing to do. Um, We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Yeah. But you've hit on a, a really important issue, which is multilateralism in, economic, in the economic sector. And a big concern, one of many concerns about Trump's gratuitous use of tariffs is um, that, and sanctions, is that over the long run, they can weaken um, you know, the, the power of the US. You know, san uh, using sanctions too much um, eventually could weaken the, the dollar and weaken the US dominance over the financial, international financial system because people, it, it motivates, the more you use it, the more it motivates people to find an alternate route. And so you, you, know, you see, um, oh dear, what was it? Europe did something with, uh, they created like an alternate Europe. The Europeans created an alternate system so they could deal with, with Iran. I mean, if you're alienating the Europeans, you're doing something really wrong. Yeah. Uh, and you, know, you have China now with um, its digital currency, which is potentially maybe in the future a way to um, evade the U.S. banking system. So uh, certainly um, there, there needs to be some really innovative new approaches to, to economic, to, to dealing with the economic challenges and eco economic coercions that China sure. is involved in. Um, you, you raised Europe and I know you spent time in Berlin. Um, so maybe I could get your take uh, on, on, on this issue. And it's been posed as well by Jan Philip Hofslag and a few others. Um, is Europe truly moving towards a more Australian or Japanese position of uh, some level of partial, decoupling is not the right word, but some level of partial uh, separation or dis economic distancing from, from China? Is there a genuine change in mindset that's occurring in Europe, particularly in Germany? And I ask this because when I dealt with the Trump administration, uh, they would tear their hair out about Europe, you know, always complaining about the Europeans. So are we seeing a change here? Yes, definitely. And that is most certainly true in Germany. When I, uh, I've been in Germany, spent time in Germany in several times in my life. And most recently in 2017, I was there for a couple of months covering <coughs> the federal elections in Berlin. And uh, 
China was like 99.9% of the time, just a purely economic thing. That was all that anyone talked about. Oh, China. Oh, trade relations. That's it. That's it. You know, and it has really changed, especially I would say in the past year or two, um, that there is really a, a growing conversation um, about maybe it's not just that. You know, maybe we need to, to consider that more engagement isn't always good, that closer trade relations isn't always good. I mean, the, you know, the, the business uh, lobby in Germany is very powerful and they have fought that change, but that change is, is real. And um, let me give an example from my own reporting. So published a piece recently, although it's something that I had been working on for a while, about how in 2017, 2017, early 2018, there was this uh, big report that was put together. It was an, an, an sort of an interagency report in Germany about all the ways that China and the Chinese government was engaging with reaching out to in some kind of covert ways to, I mean, really all of German society. So, you know, German businesses and German, um, certainly branches of the German government and civic society organizations. So a pretty complete big picture of some nefarious activity that, that China was involved in. And the report was quashed um, to some extent. It was, it was supposed to have a, it was supposed to be disseminated widely within the government and it was not, at least initially. But what's happened, and, and so, and why? why who, who, who quashed it? Well, it was a, a high-ranking minister and it was because they were concerned that it would damage economic ties between Germany and China, according to my reporting. But since then, um, elements of that report have been able to be made public and they uh, have really caused some, dis and, and the fact that that was able to happen, I think, demonstrates the growing concerns, uh, not just of the intelligence community, but of other parts of the German government and other parts of German society. And so there is um, more information available about uh, sort of, you know, ways that uh, German companies may try to change politics or ways that, um, sorry, chi Chinese companies may try to change politics in Germany or way that the Chinese intelligence services are reaching out to German parliamentarians via LinkedIn to try to get information from them. So there's, a, there's most, there has definitely been a change. It's, it is not where the U.S. is right now, certainly. Um, and, and you can sense this because, you know, Huawei being a, a good example, that, you know, Merkel has not been, um, her statements on Huawei have, have not been like Boris Johnson's. You know, she has not come out and said, we will not uh, let Huawei into our networks, at least not, not as of the last time that I checked. Um, but she also hasn't been like, that's ridiculous. Of course, we're going to let them bid on our networks. I mean, so she's clearly under quite a bit of pressure from probably both sides on that. Um, let me continue with the economic issue, particularly the coupling issue. Uh, Louise Collins from Westpac and I think two other people have actually asked very similar questions. Um, Wall Street and a lot of the big tech companies seem to be betting on the US-China economic relationship um, reverting to a bit more than what it used to be pre-Trump. And you can see that with the investments or increased investments that they're intending to make uh, in the Chinese mainland. Um, particularly big tech, and I focus on, on not, not just big tech, particularly on high tech and, and um, uh, futuristic industries, you know, we're often told that decoupling is almost certainly going to happen in those sorts of sectors, the made in China 2025 sectors. Um, do you still think that that shift will happen regardless um, of, of uh, who Biden appoints? Or, or, or do you think that that's still in play, that could it actually move backwards in, in a tech space, in a high tech space, um, towards a 
uh, re-engaging between the United States and China? Or do you think the decoupling dynamic is just too structural? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely the case. I mean, people talk sometimes you hear about decoupling here, like it's a, like it's a guaranteed thing or, or whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like we're, you know, the U S economy is still very deeply intertwined with China. And as you mentioned, I mean, investments are only going up, you know, so, um, I, I am not sure what is what is going to happen. I, I think because you know Trump has been so good and the Trump administration has been so good at um, talking about all the things that they're doing, and uh, I think Trump sometimes overly plays up the things that they're doing. I, I think that has taken up so much oxygen, so that for unless you're looking closely, you get a sense of like, oh wow, yeah, nobody is like you know it's impossible now for. U.S. companies to be forced to do technology transfer when they go to China. Actually, no, it's definitely still possible and still happening. So there's, a, I think, a little bit of a mismatch just in the public discourse about what the reality uh, is and um, how effective, you know, um, the Trump administration's policies have been. What I'm trying to say is that there is a huge, uh, there's an enormous amount of work to be done um, if we're going to try to create a space where you don't fully decouple, but you do it in a safer way. I mean, we have only just barely, barely just scratched the surface of how to do something like that. The other thing I want to mention is that decoupling started on the Chinese side, right? Like, you know, 2009, you know, they decoupled from the, from American social media, you know, they blocked Facebook, they blocked Twitter, and they've been blocking, blocking, blocking ever since. And um, we're seeing, you know, that now, and they, and they, you know, have always kept out, you know, US companies out of certain sectors. I think it's possible that that in some elements of technology, we might actually see a little bit of decoupling from the Chinese side. I'm just I'm spitballing a little bit here, but we have seen them in recent months um, as they now are achieving cl something closer to something closer to parity with the U.S. in terms of their their you know their being a, a great place for technology for having really advanced technologies. Um, they've rolled out a, uh, oh gosh, what is it, like an export, a technology export control mechanism that they actually invoked for TikTok, which is a little bit of a joke because it's not like TikTok is advanced technology. Um, but we're starting to see some of these kinds of policies or they have their own unreliable, um, like their own unreliable entities list, uh, which I'm sure they're going to use for mainly political reasons. And, and now their dual circulation thing. Um, how much of that is simply in a response to what they see as attacks, you know, external attacks to, to prepare, to help inoculate them against other countries decoupling and how much of that is something they actually desire for themselves to be just fully sort of independent on their own. Um, or I, I'm not sure. I, I am not sure what we're going to see. I think, you know, there is, there is very little decoupling right now. Maybe there will be more in the future. Yeah. I'm not sure. Actually, let me ask you a question which cuts across cuts across the decoupling Europe and Trump versus Biden diplomatic style uh, question. Um, a German intelligence officer recently just commented to me that, um, and he's no supporter of Trump administration, but he said, but for the brashness and coerciveness of the Trump administration against allies, a lot of us wouldn't even have considered some of the harder, more awkward China policies that we're considering now. That is, they're considering the cost of displeasing the Americans. And the point he was making was he obviously didn't want a coercive American ally, but 
some element of arm twisting of allies is often necessary mm. to achieve a common purpose. Um, you know, it's a very open, open-ended question, but how, how would you react to a, a comment like that? Was there some level of at least short-term usefulness um, to the Trump style of diplomacy, ha- keeping in mind that there are very there are considerable long-term costs um, yeah. of, of that kind of kind of diplomacy. That's that's interesting. Um, from my understanding of you know the, the Trump administration's outreach to European governments, uh, I mean, I think they have done a lot. There have been many trips. <laughs> Many trips, many meetings behind closed doors, many discussions uh, about what the Trump administration sees the problem as. There has been sharing of intelligence. How much intelligence? I am not sure. Um, and how much of that was was coercive? Um, the coercive stuff made headlines a lot. I'm, I'm not sure how much of it was. Um, and so I, I asked this question myself. I have wondered how much of it was the Trump administration being like, oh, like we will not share this intelligence with you unless you kick Huawei out of your networks. And how much of it was here, look, we're gonna just give you some stuff. This is straight from the NSA. Here's what they're doing. What do you think? And then, you know, Boris Johnson is like, oh gosh, wow, I didn't know that. I don't know, I don't know, because I'm not in those meetings. I don't know, I don't know how, much, how much of it, um, push them in one direction or another. That's a very interesting point that maybe having a slightly, you know, that, that now part of the calculus is having to consider, oh gosh, how will the Americans react? I don't like that. That doesn't make me happy. It doesn't make me feel like, wow, you know, we're doing great things for the world. Um, but maybe sometimes that's required when we're dealing with such a hard, um, when dealing with, with, with such, a, uh, such, such a difficult problem like, like China, uh, when and I, I think one of I think one of the things that, that China does so well is because they have kind of coupled their economic engagement with um, geopolitical uh, co-optation. It's very easy for government leaders anywhere to say, "Oh, I'm doing something good for my country. This will increase our GDP. This will make my business leaders happy. This will." do whatever it does, it's actually good. And we're just, it's just a little bit of stuff we have to give away, but it doesn't matter. I think that's a really, really easy decision to make. And it's understandable, you know, when, when China's become very good and they've really honed and are honing their ability to do that. Maybe you need some pushing from the other side. Um, you touched upon this, but let's talk about human rights um, um, uh, under a Biden administration. And it's been raised by quite a few um, people who've logged on. So the common, assu- the common assumption is that Biden will take human rights far more seriously, right? And he's been very upfront about that. Um, now, the counter is that the Trump administration has been far more upfront about criticising China on issues such as Uyghurs, for example, uh, Tibet, um, than um, the previous Obama administration. Uh, so I guess my question is, um, first of all, do you think just as a matter of historical record, the criticisms of a Trump, not of the Trump administration, not a Trump, but of the Trump administration, that it did not uh, take him right seriously. Is that a fair criticism? And secondly, uh, do, you, uh, do you assume that the Biden administration will make those awkward diplomatic decisions to actually raise these issues with as much prominence as the Trump administration has? 
When it comes to China, that is absolutely not a fair criticism. And the times I've heard people say that, I just want to be like, where have you been for the past? What, do, what are you talking, like literally, what are you talking about? Like I just, it makes me almost angry because the Trump administration, not, yes, we all know that, that Trump loves human rights violations. He would like to commit more of them and he loves the people who commit them. Like we all know that. But when it comes to China, what, what the Trump administration has actually done is you know, actually impose costs, real costs, not just make nice sounding statements uh, on, on China for doing stuff. And let me, and the best example I know of this is I was like speechless for like three days after they uh, put the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps on the sanctions list. I was shocked. I never believed that any administration ever would do that. Why? Because it might be the single biggest sanction that the U.S. government has ever levied, ever. Maybe with an exception for maybe something with Iran and maybe something with North Korea. But it was massive. This is 12, like the XPCC controls 12% of the Xinjiang economy. You know, they, they're, they, have, they have maybe thousands of subsidiaries. I mean, just like, just the efforts of, of trying to enforce such a sanction are mind-numbing like they would have to hire like a dozen new people like just to research the xpcc um that was stunning i never believed that would happen and there's and there's been other i mean there's been lots of sanctions and there's been i mean they sanctioned carrie lamb <laughs> they they put a global magnitsiac sanction on carrie lamb you know the uh, chief executive of hong kong so like I, I have very little patience for that kind of criticism. And I, I feel like it comes from, and I, I don't know who you've heard it from. I feel like it comes from people who know what Trump does, but don't actually know very much about what the Trump administration has done on China. Um, now it's totally, I would say it's definitely fair for other aspects of the Trump administration, like how much they love Saudi Arabia and hate Iran. This makes no sense. Iran is a much better place to live than Saudi Arabia. Um, like, and you know, uh, Saudi Arabia exports like Wahhabism around the world and like, you know, militant Shiism is not really popular except, it, you know, for people who are like in Hezbollah. So that's another, that's, that's another issue. Um, I, I think that the Biden administration, I, I would be, I would again be very shocked if the Biden administration was anywhere near that hard on, on, on the Uyghurs specifically. I, I would love to be wrong. I think that we will hear lots of really beautiful statements about how much the Uyghurs mean to the Biden administration. What are they, you know, and lots of invoking of human, I don't want words. Uyghurs don't want words, they want action. And this is my concern that the statements are gonna get lots of really nice headlines amongst like sympathetic media outlets. Like, oh, look, it's so wonderful to have a, you know, an administration that supports human rights, do something about it. Um, and, you know, and so the, the Biden campaign has, you know, when it was a campaign, they said that, they, that the genocide, that the Uyghur repression was a genocide, that's great. They should make that, you know, they should make that an official legal designation so that then it, so that then things have to happen legally. If they do that, then that would be great. That that would be action. Uh, let's get to climate change because Biden obviously has a lot more interest in combating climate change than than the Trump administration did. Um, now, what what specific things do you think Biden may do uh, in the short term? And more broadly, when it comes to the U.S.-China issue. Is climate change something which will potentially be a point of uh, unity or actually a point of difference between the United States and China? Interesting. Um, I think that probably one of President Biden's earliest actions on this is going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords. Um, 
to, you know, for not for, for symbolic reasons, but also for non-symbolic reasons, for very practical reasons. I think that, I do think that President Biden will make um, policies to address climate change a priority. What will be difficult though is uh, because we are very likely gonna have a divided Congress. So Senate is probably gonna stay Republican and House is Democrat he will have a huge challenge to try to push forward some, um, you know, big legislation that would really, that would really change things, you know. Um, and that's the kind of thing that needs to happen for the U.S. to actually take significant strides in addressing climate change. It's also, I would say, concerning now that we have a, con a very big conservative majority in the Supreme Court, because, it, you know, in, in my, it's my belief that uh, the only thing that will stop climate change from getting worse is government action, and uh, the conservative Supreme Court is, I think you know if if Congress tries to pass innovative new big regulations on things that the, the Supreme Court might strike that down, even if they are able to to pass and become signed into law. So he really has um, an enormous mountain in front of him of obstacles for major action domestically on climate change. In terms of working together with China, I know that this is an area that the Biden, the future Biden administration, hopes to accomplish because this is something that, that um, doesn't have to be ideological and that you know, everyone in the world is, is facing this, this same challenge along with the coronavirus. So I think climate change and coronavirus are areas that he will be able to work with China on. And because it's, a foreign, it's an area of foreign policy and less, less one, a, a domestic issue that could be successful. Uh, let me return back to security issues. Um... Oh, and economic issues, uh, but on on issue of Chinese coerciveness in particular, um, you know, as as we spoke about right at the beginning of this webinar, Australia is feeling the heat um, from the Chinese with, with the economic threats against us um, within Australia itself, and and you know, the Australian government obviously has has some aspects um, where it's supportive of the Trump administration, some aspects where it's been really critical. But it always felt that the, straight, the, the Trump administration uh, had its back in that sense. The Trump administration has no problem confronting, so it had its back. Um, so there, is, there are some concerns in the Australian system that a Biden administration, yes, it will have a more elegant, sophisticated alliance policy and, and, a, and other suites of other policies. Uh, but the question I'm really asking is, is there very high... Uh, consciousness in Washington, particularly amongst Democrats, um, about about the Australia-China relationship at the moment and the sorts of things that Australia is currently uh, going through. I think in in China's circles, and this is bipartisan, there's a pretty broad recognition of what Australia is going through and has been going through for for years now, um, and and a concern about that, and also I would say a pretty high degree of value on the Australian experience and on the relationship with Australia, especially people who understand the, the intelligence sharing relationship and how valuable that has been for both sides. I would say that in the US in general and um, you know, amongst maybe just DC people at large, Australia does not have a large, does not occupy a large amount of like mental space of like of, of people at large. Um, in part because the U.S. is just really self-centered. Um, and I, I do find that concerning. Uh, I understand that concern that Australia, that people within the Australian system worry that the Biden administration may not have their back. My hope would be 
that um, people within the Biden administration would continue to value that relationship just as strongly. Uh, and, and that the, the emphasis on alliances and partnerships and multilateral um, efforts could actually maybe help Australia even more. Um, for example, um, I can imagine if Biden puts a lot of effort into creating a multilateral mechanism to deal with China's economic threats, something outside of the WTO, an automatic, oh, China's doing this to Australia, this is going to kick in an automatic something from all the, from all the other member nations who, you know, um, all agree to place some kind of tariff or sanction on China in response. This would be an enormous undertaking. I mean, just huge. But one can imagine that that might happen under the Biden administration where it would never have happened under the Trump administration. I think that is a kind of hard logic that China would understand that, that when it kicks Australia, it's kicking like 12 other countries at the same time in a very literal way. Okay, so we're, we're almost run out of time. So I'm going to pose one last question to you. And this is quite a difficult question to answer. So I'm going to put you on a spot, though. Uh, when, uh, when Trump uh, won the last election and in the handover, uh, in a conventional handover when he met Barack Obama, we are told that Barack Obama told Trump that North Korea was the number one issue, uh, a security issue facing United States. Uh, it may be that Trump may never offer that same handover to Joe Biden, but let's assume he does. Uh, what would you say to Joe Biden was the number one external issue uh, that that uh, was that that was uh, that United States had to deal with? Climate change. I think that's the main existential threat that we face. I, don't, I think everything else falls away in the long term. Thinking about that. It's not, a, it's not a foreign policy issue, I guess. But that's, well, that's what if, I would... if, if the odds uh, of uh, uh, Donald Trump offering that handover to Biden are low, I think the odds oh, of Donald Trump raising climate that. change <laughs> is probably even lower. Right. If I'm Trump, I'm <laughs> definitely not going to say that. No, no. But, uh... but no. no, no, no. That's, that's, that's the un, that's an unfair question. But Bethany, we've run out of time, and this is the sort of issue which, um, you know, you, you can talk for, for, for many hours um, but really, thank you for giving up the time. I know it's evening uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, thank you to the uh, online audience, the people who have logged on. Um, the Thanksgiving break will be coming, as, as uh, you all know, so there won't be a webinar uh, next week, but please go onto our website, ussc.edu.au, for the webinars uh, that will be coming up uh, in the weeks after that. Bethany, it's been a really great conversation. Thanks very much uh, and, and good evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you today.